Welcome to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin. I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Thank you, Mozart, for that beautiful, inspiring introduction and uh, to what I feel is going to be a very beautiful, very interesting show today. We are going to be spending the hour with a colleague and dear friend of mine, Yasuhiko Genku Kimura, who is formerly a Buddhist monk, priest from Japan, where he was in fact interestingly being trained to be the Pope equivalent, that is, in Japan, uh, in Zen. And he has since dropped those robes many, many moons ago actually and moved to the United States and has continued his quest of understanding through being a philosopher, an author, and a teacher consultant in business as well as to people in the world at large. Very interesting work he's been doing in the domains of transformation and evolution, integrative thinking, and in LA and now in New York where he's now based, he has been leading workshops, seminars and the like, classes for many years on end and internationally as well, Brazil, Costa Rica and elsewhere teaching people the art, if you will, and some of the science behind authentic thinking. This is very interesting because how many people really even know what that term is? Well, in today's session with Yasuhiko, we'll be deconstructing that. We'll be looking at what that means and what the implications are for that. I mean, let's look around and we see that we have today an extraordinarily troubled world in so many domains. We see, in fact, that we have very little going on that you could call rational, much that isn't. And you could say that by learning to think well with all of our parts could then empower us to do what we need to do in this world to make it, let's say, use the old phrase, a better world. But if we don't have clear thinking, if we don't have what Yosohiko calls authentic thinking, well, we might be stuck in the same trap that we're in today. So this is the kind of material we'll be dealing with today, and it has far-ranging, I would say, implications for the work we have to do as human beings on our planet at this point in time. So Yasuhiko, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Yes. <clears throat> Good to see you. Good to see you, too. <clears throat> you know, whenever I'm with you, I feel myself getting inspired to think more clearly. Mm, I feel the same way about you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very, you know, an admiration society. <laughs> but, you know, it's not always we both know that um, we feel this way in different people's presences. And mm. we may feel other things. We may feel, how would I say, a sexual urge or an artistic urge or another kind of impulse. But with you, because I think the wavelength that you emit, if you will, the resonance field in which you uh, live and operate has a clear intellectual resonance. And it attracts me and Thank inspires. You. Thank you. You're most dobitashimashite, as we say in the old language. What is it that you mean when you say authentic thinking? We really want to get down to the basics here. 
so our audience can understand. And also, you teach classes, and I want people to know about that. So if they are interested in contacting you about that, they can do so. Okay. Um, authentic thinking is my English translation of the Japanese term kamikairu. Kamikairu, uh, in ancient uh, Japanese, uh, meant to think. And today in, in Japan, people would say kangairu, and they don't know the origin and etymology of this word. Kami kairu, kami is a divinity within you, ground of being, also cosmic intelligence alive within you, and kairu means to return. And when we look at the truly creative thinking process, we realize that your consciousness stays in the, in, in the kind of mode in which you return to the divinity, the divine intelligence within you, and be inspired by yourself in this way, and you have a new vision, new idea, and original uh, thought. And then you will start to express it. So authentic thinking, kamikairu, is that kind of thinking in which you actually draws your cosmic intelligence that is alive within you into the world. And authentic, the term authentic, has the same roots as authority and also authorship. Author, sure. Yeah. Therefore, you know, authentic thinking. You are the author of your thought. And you are the inner authority in the matter of thinking and also knowing and acting. And so this is a very spiritual concept. And thinking is a very spiritual activity. And when I be began uh, teaching, I realized that this aspect of uh, spirituality is not, was not uh, paid, uh, paid attention to. Uh, many people think spirituality is anti-thinking. They teach you no mind, no thinking. And when you study uh, Zen, you know, my background, they don't really say that. And when you're meditating, you have thought. And you think it is your thought. But if it is your thought, you can stop it. But usually, you cannot stop the thought that goes through your mind because it is not your thought. When you are thinking authentically, you can start and you can stop your thinking. So the thinking process has these two components, returning to the inner divinity, inner intelligence within you, this return, and then from there you again come back to this world. And so meditation, the, the initial process of returning to divinity is meditation, and from there to uh, bring forth new ideas, this is a creation. So authentic thinking is a meditation creation uh, evolutionary cycle. Yeah. And that is very, very important for people to understand 
and to cultivate within themselves for their spiritual evolution. Wow, that is a wonderful, juicy paragraph. <laughs> it really is. And you hit upon a couple of points that I did want to bring up, and I'm glad you did. The idea of no mind, for instance, that has been popularized in Zen of all different kinds of Buddhism, mm -hmm. in fact, which makes it all the more ironic that that's not what it means in the original Japanese or probably the original Pali or Chinese, for that matter. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. And there is a real trend in spirituality, as it's come at least to the West, that is anti-intellectual mm -hmm. and, of course, anti-thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's been cut off. And so what you're saying here, Yasuhiko, you could say restores and rekindles the true energy, the true key and chi of thinking and re ennobles it and re-extols it to the height that it really should occupy. After all, all great scientific breakthroughs, musical breakthroughs, artistic breakthroughs, business breakthroughs occur mm -hmm. connected to thinking. Yes. Now, thinking, as we both know, also in traditional contexts like the Chinese, is something that actually occurs in the heart. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other thing that I would like you to well, speak about. Well, in Buddhism, you know, we say those who cannot think cannot really feel, and vice versa. Oh. The thinking and feeling are together. Mm -hmm. And mind and heart are together. And when you are involved in truly a creative thinking, all of your consciousness, including your heart and your feeling and your emotions, are involved. So you can't have a creative thought when you're not inspired. And when you're not inspired, uh, when you cannot be inspired having really ecstatic feeling within yourself. So this intelligence yes. that I'm talking about that is alive within you, uh, Tibetans call this, you know, supraconscious cognitive intensity or ecstatic in intensity. It is there within you. Yes. And it is actually the force that moves the universe. You know, um, when I came to this country uh, and was developing a way of sharing spirituality with people, uh, I had this question. Uh, in the last two or three hundred years, we have seen a tremendous advance in science and technology. You know, uh, my wife uh, purchased, you know, iPads. And within a few, few months, now they have a new iPad. And every day, uh, young, brilliant scientists are making new discoveries. So science has developed tremendously since the time of Galileo, Kepler, and Newton. Mm -hmm. And look at religion or spirituality. It has stayed the same for the last 3,000 years. Uh, in my tradition, Buddhism uh, and Zen Buddhism, you know, uh, Zen Master Dogen brought this uh, Zen from China in 1226, when he was 26 years old. Mm -hmm. And they do the same thing today, exact same, and they teach the exact same teaching. And in Tibetan Buddhism. Any form of Buddhism, you, you see, they basically uh, leave the culture 
that came from the past. When you go to Christianity, Muslim, the same. Now I ask this question, why spirituality hasn't developed or evolved in the way science and technology has developed? It's a very interesting question. And when we talk about uh, evolution of consciousness and spiritual evolution, we also need to talk about the evolution of uh, teaching of spiritual evolution. Yes. And it has not evolved. So, uh, you know, I have always loved science and mathematics, and, you know, I begin to compare. And there are a number of things I discovered. You can say I start to apply my own authentic thinking in this subject. Yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> there are a number of things you can see. Uh, in science, when your theory and reality don't match, you take reality, not your theory. So you discard your theory, model, hypothesis, postulates, and you come up with something new. And to match reality. Yes, to match reality. Reality is the, the highest authority, not your theory. Second, in science, you start from the known and move in, into the unknown. Religion is opposite. You start from the unknown. I'm not denying there isn't God, uh, there is God. But, you know, when you begin, you don't know. You really don't. So the God is unknown to most people. And you are asked to believe it. So you are asked to believe and accept the unknown. And then you try to explain the known. Totally opposite of science. <laughs> and also, when your belief and the reality don't match, you actually deny reality and not the belief. In exchange for faith. Exactly. So, these, there are many other uh, you know, uh, elements of this, but you know, there's two things. Uh, starting from the unknown. Actually. Yeah, starting from the unknown to the known, <coughs> as opposed to starting from the known to the unknown, and then taking your belief, a theory, model, over reality, and those, this attitude that pervades religion, uh, not only Christianity and, and Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo uh, Judeo religions, but also Buddhism and yeah. other. So, in Buddhism, we don't have God, but you have Buddha. And you'll be lucky if you are evolved enough to be like Buddha. And Buddha would be disappointed if we haven't gone beyond him after 2,500 years. <laughs> and if we haven't come up with something better than he came up with 2,500 years ago. So, uh, in order to facilitate uh, evolution of consciousness, a spiritual awakening, and spiritual transformation, uh, I began to develop a methodology which I think is more advanced, <laughs> at well, least technologically speaking. You want to update, update, the, update, update the study of religion yeah, uh, and uh, spirituality. Spiritual evolution yeah. using a higher technology than, uh, that exists before. But let's mm. take a look at yes. something. I, I want to hear this, needless <laughs> to say. However, uh, I'm a very humble person, by the way. <laughs> 
<laughs> but of course. Yes. Anyway. Listen. Our invitation mm -hmm. by Jesus Christ uh -huh. and Buddha is go beyond me. Absolutely. And same with Gurdjieff and same with Rudolf Steiner and same with all of the great mm -hmm. teachers that have come. Yes. They always want the student to surpass. Yes. And Zen as well. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> we have that. We have a good footing. Yes. But I'd like to just return to yes. this notion and hear what you have to say about it, Yasuiko, which is this. Maybe one of the reasons that religion as we think of it and the study of spiritual discipline mm -hmm. hasn't grown in the same ways as science and mathematics mm -hmm. etc mm -hmm. is because they feel that they've got a foothold in the eternal mm -hmm. yeah, I know you were going to say that. oh ah, you were <laughs> yeah, reading yeah, my yeah, mind yeah. and <clears throat> and so therefore what is changeable in the eternal mm -hmm. what how can you re-express the ineffable it's already inexpressible. So you will use the rest of cultural manifestations and evolution as an expression of your footing in the eternal. Mm -hmm. What would you say about now, that? Now, you want to... Uh, Does that all make sense to no, you? No, absolutely. Okay. You want to uh, define what eternal is. And let me just give you a kind of a visual model. So when we think of time... We have a you know, linear model or a circular model, but you, you can just, for the sake of argument, just say linear model of time. Mm -hmm. It goes straight line. There's a vector, a horizontal vector. Right. Hmm? And then people think of now as, you know, every moment of this. And as that, sequential. Sequentially now going through. And most, most people think that, you know, uh, this moment of now is eternal, and there's a truth to this, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but if you think of time in, in a two-dimensional way, and one dimension is that uh, uh, traditional uh, horizontal uh, time, mm -hmm. and second is a vertical time that goes across perpendicular to this uh, horizontal time. When you have a uh, experience of the now, that is actually that vertical moment of time. And eternal is a complementarity between the two. So timeless is not the opposite of time, but timeless is the integration of the two dimensions of time. Mm. Now, Beautiful. and Horizontal time goes all the way, as you know. And vertical time can actually, this vector can actually increase in, in, the, in the magnitude. The vector has a direction and a magnitude. So depth of your uh, understanding, the depth of your experience, and depth of experiencing this vertical time can change. And there is no limitation as to how far you can go in this uh, vertical vector. The, when we begin to experience this uh, horizontal and vertical vector on an ongoing basis, there's a possibility that the eternity increases, wholeness increases, and infinity increases. And those of us who studied mathematics, there is, uh, you know, uh, something called set theory, in which we talk about uh, trans-finite realm, 
transfinite numbers, and they discovered there are infinite number of infinities, and there are different degree to infinities. So infinity can actually increase in its degree of infinity. In the same way, we can actually increase in the degree to which you can experience this infinity, wholeness, and eternity. And for that reason, I can say that you know, eternity evolves, infinity evolves, and wholeness evolves. And if we do not evolve in this way, we are doing a disservice to the great contribution of Buddha and Christ, and all those great masters who came before us. Mm. Wow. Maybe that is the true symbology of the cross mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. That is really, really interesting. I'm going to start up studying mathematics again. <laughs> Truly. No, I, I see the other vector that you're drawing here, which is between the nature of consciousness and the notion of developing ourselves, evolving spiritually with our ability to mm -hmm. experience the greater depth and magnitude of the vertical vector. Exactly. Yep. And in another way of looking at this, and uh, you know, uh, you have attended many of my you know lectures and stuff, so you know, you know, I uh, engage people in the thought experiment. When you are conscious, you are conscious of something, mm -hmm. and when you are conscious of something, your consciousness that is conscious of something is not conscious of itself. And meditation, and actually enlightenment experience, is when consciousness becomes conscious of itself without objectifying it. Once this happens, you begin to see you as a continuum. No longer you identify yourself with this objectified ego-logical self, but as the self-self continuum in which large self is always present as an observer and also creator and then you are actually watching your egological self or small self acting in the three-dimensional world with other people so you begin to gain that dimension to this and when you begin to live yourself not as a self or an ego, but as a self-self continuum, your experience of the moment of now, your experience of your vertical time, begin to increase. Mm -hmm. And what evolves is the self-self continuum. And then the self, the larger self that is conscious of all those movements, also become conscious of something uh, beyond it. And at the same time, this self, that is the observer of the self-self continuum, realizes that yourself and myself at this level interpenetrating, mm -hmm. interaccommodating, interbeing, intersoul, interself, intersubjectivity, which is beyond the regular uh, intersubjectivity that people most uh, think of. Yes. You, are, you and I are one, at least not two. <laughs> and that dimension of awareness also uh, increases. So there's a tremendous possibility for evolution 
that we have and we have not uh, tapped into. That's why, you know, uh, in my program, you know, uh, I use different uh, models and uh, meditations and technologies to stimulate the evolution of consciousness from different uh, directions, creating a synergy within each person's consciousness yeah. so that something new will come into existence. Well, we need a lot to come into existence that's new and novel mm -hmm. because by using just on the three-dimensional plane about three to five percent of our brain, um, look at the world that we've got. And inside this world is a huge volume of brilliance, mm -hmm. of novelty, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but there's also a huge interest in the egological, I love your use of that word, egological, distinct from, by the way, I would like to put it ecological, <laughs> and when we're ecological, we are truly connected to the ecosystem, mm -hmm. and that is the truth. We are just part of the ecosystem, which mm. has always been an indigenous understanding, yes. and never to put self first as such the way mm. we Americans mm. do it, you know, the way the West has been trained to think of self and other, but rather to be part of a larger holistic mm -hmm. whole. Mm -hmm. And I very much appreciate your use of the word wholeness over and again mm -hmm. in describing the type of depth that we can have mm -hmm. when we touch upon the vertical and the way they intersect. You know, uh, I say long before there was ecological movement, there was ecological movement. And human history is the result of the ecological movement. Yes. And what you and I are working on is to initiate trans-ecological movement. That's right. And the ecological movement is part of it. <clears throat> That's because right. ecological consciousness is a consciousness of wholeness and harmony and balance That's right. with the rest of the universe and the rest of humanity and the rest of nature. Exactly. And different modes of consciousness is required for people to be ecological. That's right. And sometimes you can see ecological movement taking over ecological movement. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. It's happened yeah. already, yeah. actually. Yeah. When so, any time something becomes institutionalized, mm -hmm. it becomes egological. Mm -hmm. And there's really seems like there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. It loses its organic connection mm -hmm. and connectedness mm -hmm. to the heart mind. Yeah. So it is so important for us to ongoingly mm. uh, develop what I call omnicentric field of consciousness yes. in which you are the center, I am the center, and everybody else is center and responsible. And when you have this omnicentric consciousness, the spontaneous order arises which has its own design. And that is a new kind of society that will emerge once we begin to create a core of omnicentric uh, consciousness. Yes. And in a sense that, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish uh, through my uh, programs is to create an omnicentric consciousness in each uh, person who partake in my program. Mm -hmm. So it is not just for a spiritual enlightenment. 
you know, nobody has ever came up with something better than meditation for that purpose. All we can do with respect to uh, enlightenment is to really, you know, invent a uh, new technology for meditation, which I have done. Uh, but the other dimension is uh, uh, also need to be covered. So there is a, a pre-enlightenment development, the post-enlightenment development, and evolution. And we need to cover all of this. And that's why the uh, old mode of spirituality has limitation. You know, once you get enlightened, so what? And nowadays, many people get enlightened, and then life, they have no, no more suffering, and life is basically fine. They don't need to, you know, uh, uh, go to their psychologist anymore. So and, they save money. Uh, save money <laughs> and happy. But it is a form of contentment. The, and it has an element of self-deception involved. And self-involvement, Self, yeah, Self-involvement, yes, yeah. Indulgence, actually. Yes. And... Uh, I was being gentler. Yes. <laughs> when, you, when we um, tune into our own uh, spirit, our soul, our heart, there is this uh, evolutionary thrust for optimization, uh, more wholeness, more quality. And it is not ambition, it is not greed, none of those. There's a pure, pure evolutionary thrust, which is the essence of life that permeates the universe. And you know. children yeah. shows that, uh, show that much better than you know, we, we do. And one of the ways that that shows up is the curiosity. Yeah. Pure curiosity, wanting to know something. And by the time people become seven years old, their curiosity is basically killed. Very few people somehow well, maintain it. It depends on the context and the environment in mm -hmm. which they're raised. Yes. And educated. Exactly. And I know that part of your idea mm -hmm. about creating a more conscious, evolutionary-minded mm -hmm. and hearted mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. is one in which education in the family mm -hmm. and in the school mm -hmm. can more understand and appreciate mm -hmm. that if we were to bloom like flowers do in the spring, mm -hmm. that's truly mm -hmm. our nature. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in order to educate people, <coughs> they need to, and be, to keep that going in life. Yes, they need to be educable, and educability usually get killed by the time they become seven, twelve, so on. Exactly. And educability, the essence of educability is curiosity. Hold on one second. Mm -hmm. We have to let everybody know that you are listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World on Progressive Radio Network, and we are speaking with the evolutionary leader teacher, uh, Yasuhiko Genku Kimura, for the hour, and we're unpacking this notion of authentic thinking, and now we're going broader and deeper, if you can imagine that, at the same time. I would like to 
Yeah, so he go, bring this around to something that I began opening up having to do with the fact that we really use 3 to 5% of our brain system and look at the world that we've got, a uh, highly irrational, mm. very inauthentic how, world. How do you know it is 3 to 5%? Well, I was about to comment on that, <laughs> which is to say what we actually know about the nervous system. Uh-huh. Are you reading my mind again? No, no. Okay. What we actually know about mm-hmm. the nervous system mm-hmm. is that all of the possible dendritic and neurological connections are infinite. Mm-hmm. So what we have is another example mm-hmm. of dancing with the infinite. Mm-hmm. You've heard of Dancing mm-hmm. with the Stars? Mm-hmm. This is another example we of watched, that. We watched that program. You do? Mm-hmm. Well, now you can bring another <laughs> element to it. Um, but it is, in fact, just our thinking, whatever it is, mm-hmm. just our memory function, mm-hmm. just our telepathic and intuitive functions, mm-hmm. all of that is still occupying some small mm-hmm. quantity mm-hmm. of our entire neural functionality. Mm-hmm. That's the main point. Mm-hmm. And if all of the connectivity is is considered to be infinite, mm-hmm. then how do you take a measure of the infinite? You would actually know that better than I would. But let's just, relatively speaking, say that if we have 100% capacity, ultimately, and we're using but a little bit of it, then we have a whole more distance mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. So if we were to uh, employ the notions that you're putting on the table here, mm-hmm. which are completely fascinating, I would like to hear what you would have to say of how we could go from where we are now into the creation of a world that could actually make use. And I know you're touching upon the whole idea of being educable. I, I'm reminded a lot in some of your speaking of my old teacher, Richard Bandler, of neurolinguistic programming, mm-hmm. who used to collapse time all the time, mm-hmm. by the way, about saying that why should it take X amount of time, for instance, to heal a phobia, like years of psychotherapy on the couch or psychoanalysis, when if we can agree to... Um, shift the consciousness that brings about the phobia in about 40 seconds, you'll save yourselves a lot of time and trouble. Mm-hmm. So I know that there's an elasticity of time, and I know there's an elasticity of thought. And this gives us just intense possibility for shifting things quickly. But if we take a look at our bottom line now of where we are as a, an evolved humanity, and look at what the possibilities are, even a few that you've begun to suggest here. What is the road from where we are to that place? Mm-hmm. Please think, by the way, the body politic, the, the economy, think the real world so we don't get lost in abstraction. So we are going to solve that problem in the next 25 minutes? No, 20. Oh, 20 minutes? Yeah. Oh, Okay. <laughs> We have to really one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I don't think you're capable of. Sometimes you overestimate me. <laughs> Am I expressing love or what? Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. You know, um, I can approach this program, uh, the the issue. Or just touch upon it. Yes, uh, from a, a little bit different pr- uh, uh, perspective. Okay. Um, when you come to my program, uh, we talk about uh, primacy of consciousness. And we ask our participants to take on that assumption that the consciousness is 
and that is the fundamental uh, uh, existence, being, from which everything uh, arises. Mm -hmm. That was the premise that uh, we ask people to uh, try on. And when you look at the issue that you just uh, mentioned, including the, including the brain, from the primacy of consciousness aspect, substance of the universe is consciousness, and more precisely speaking, it is a uh, complex of vibrations. Some people would call it thought. <clears throat> and brain and body is something like an operating system inside. And the 3% or 5% of brain that we are using correspond to certain level of vibrations, thought vibrations that we are using. And the more, the finer the vibrational field in which our consciousness begin to function, the corresponding aspects of the brain will also appear to be activated. So, the finer the thought, and finer the language we use to express this thought or frame this thought, the finer will be the vibration that resonates with the brain that is not yet used today. So You could almost call it the homeopathy of thinking. Interesting. That's, I like that. So, from this perspective, two things, uh, actually many things, but the two major things. <clears throat> One is, we need to uh, intentionally expose ourselves to a finer and finer form of thought, which will require deconstructing and reconstructing and recreating a finer form of language. And so the finer the language that you can create, which will host the thought, which is also finer, which reflect the finer vibrations, the part of the brain that is required to resonate with that thought will become, become activated. So that's a cultural aspect of it. And in our own... Uh, so from that point of view, you could also say the invention of language, the original authentic use of language, mm -hmm. the creative use, mm -hmm. and one of our finer expressions in language mm -hmm. of poetry mm -hmm. becomes a way of refining thought. In other words, language is the food of thought. Well, language is the cloth of thought. And food of thought is other, other thought. Which is constructed my, from my, language. My thought is feeding your thought, and your <clears throat> thought is feeding my thought. Yes. So we are mutually feeding each other. Exactly. It's called feedback and feed forth. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Communication. But keep feeding. <laughs> and the language is the cross, the frame. Yes. And finer thought requires a finer frame. And by, by creating a finer frame, 
the, also the thought that will be the content of that frame will become finer. So it goes together. Exactly. So I think it's poetry, poetry, and philosophy, and actually mathematics, yeah. language. Music. I'm sorry. I'm music. I'm sorry. I, I, music. That's okay. Music. Those are the language. Right. That host uh, thought. Yes. And the more, the finer the frame, the thought will be finer. And that's one aspect. So, you know, we can continue to work together in creating a new language, a finer language. The second aspect uh, from the spiritual perspective, the most people's, uh, you can say, uh, people talk about seven chakras, so let's just say seven. It's the seven bodies. Physical body, etheric body, astral body, mental body, and so on and so forth. Most people, most human beings have basically opened up to the mental body. And within this mental body, also there's a microcosm of seven bodies. And most human beings exist in the fourth uh, micro-body within the fourth uh, macro-body, or ma mental body. And that corresponds to the 3 to 5% of brain that being used. Yes. So we need to uh, bring our uh, center of consciousness, a chakric center of consciousness, higher and higher. And uh, there are a number of uh, meditation techniques that actually stimulate the evolution of chakric energy. And, uh, you know, you're in my program, and uh, you, you have one form of meditation. <coughs> and as we develop into a different, you know, advanced programs, uh, I give people a different form of meditations, which is designed to actually stimulate higher centers. Yes. And so, uh, Gurudev talks about higher feeling center and higher thinking center. Sure. I do something similar in stimulating the higher chakric centers, which is connected to the centers that are beyond mental body. So that, and then when that happens, the the part of the brain that is capable of resonating with that uh, the vibrations will begin to vibrate. So in this way, and since it is etern uh, infinity, it will take eternal time to <laughs> activate all of it. Yeah. But you know, we will, we will, we but can, we've got the time. We can, we can move on and move on. And therefore, you know, uh, for children, it is important for us to expose them to a high culture and higher formal language sure. from the very beginning, from early on. And uh, yeah. There are a number of uh, brilliant thinkers who actually invented a new language. You know, they appear to be like English, for example, if they, they, their base is English. Buckminster Fuller. How about Gunther? When you read their books, although they use English, how you they you they use English is different. But there are also many poets, even well, including E.E. E. Cummings as one example, going back many yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Gurdjieff also did it using Latin and Greek etymological roots mm -hmm. of English mm -hmm. and of the Romance yes, languages yes. in his Bills Above Tales to his grandson, 
very much reinvents yes. a language. Yes. And uh, but I also wanted to circle back around and, to something. And you and I also are engaged in that uh, you know work Practice. of uh, reinventing or inventing a new language. And yes. uh, you know uh, many great spiritual teachers have done the same. Yeah. R- r- although I haven't read Rumi in original language, it seems right. that the, she, he invented the new language. Yes. Dogen, who was the sure. uh, contemporary of Rumi, his writing is different from anybody else. Is that so? He invented uh, Dogenese, which is not <laughs> Japanese or Chinese. Is that he true? He used the Japanese and Chinese to the maximum uh, effect, but it is his unique style. Would you say the same thing? Because you translated yes. Lao Tzu. Uh, from Chinese into Lao Tzu's uh, writing is not that you know uh, original. Not that different. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, but the ideas. He, were. His his job was to you know simply state it. Uh, Dogen was actually up to something more, uh-huh. which is to actually reinvent a language, which is more uh, consonant and concordant with this non-dual consciousness. That he was trying to convey in language. Yes. Interesting. And th- is that where we get the koan? Koan is precedes Dogen, and Dogen was not too much into koan in using uh, using koan in teaching students. Although he corrected the three hundred koans, you know, uh, in, in the form of book. You know, I would say this as I'm listening here, Yasuhiko, that uh, I think that the use of not only Jewish, but any number of kinds mm-hmm. of humor mm-hmm. is also a road, a path to understanding contradiction in language, mm-hmm. hypocrisy in action mm-hmm. and attitude, and helps us circle around mm-hmm. from a point of tension and mm-hmm. conflict mm-hmm. to resolution, mm-hmm. which can help us move along an evolutionary mm-hmm. path, mm-hmm. funny as it may sound, yeah. To greater awareness and consciousness. Yes, you know, uh, in the beginning of our. Does that make sense? Yes, too? yes, yes. And okay. in, in the beginning of our, you know, uh, humor conver- as a spiritual path. Yes, and I want to talk about this. You know, uh, in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned rationality. And uh, uh, today, rationality has kind of a negative connotation to many people, but to me, it is a very, very, very positive. Oh, and, me too. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, people confuse rationality with logicality. You meet a lot of logical people who are totally irrational. Right. <laughs> and rationality requires way deeper. The sense of wholeness. Oh yeah. You see, rational means rational. In order to see the ratio you have to have the whole picture. Right. You need to have a wholeness in your mind to be able to see the ratio of things. It's proportion. Proportions, exactly. Harmonics. Therefore, rational mind is a mind that is attuned to wholeness, and logical mind, you, logical is a part it's of a it. subset. A subset, yeah. and when people are focusing the subset only, they become irrational. That's right. You look, there are a lot of uh, the terrorists, but very logical people. In order to coordinate, suppose that you know uh, I'm not going into conspiracy theory at the moment. Just accept the you know. Uh, uh, official story that it was the terrorist who, you know, destroyed the World Trade Center. Yes. Imagine the amazing logic behind coordinating all oh, of yeah. this. It took years and years. Sure. 
That's logical. But what they have done is completely irrational. And sanity requires rationality. So there are a lot of logical, brilliant, logical people who are irrational sure. and insane. It runs the same parallel mm -hmm. as the attitude toward the anti-intellectual and anti-thought mm -hmm. notion mm -hmm. that you will find in spirituality in the New Age. Exactly. It, it really runs parallel. And some, some, but I know, want to circle around to something else yes. and hear what you have to say. And we are beginning to, even though it's eternal, and I appreciate it, and I agree with it, out of time, mm -hmm. <laughs> linear time only. <laughs> um, so we'll go into great depth in our remaining minutes. Mm -hmm. As you were speaking, Yasuiko, I was thinking about two things coming back to Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. One is that one of the definitions of meditation is concentration. Mm -hmm. It's not anywhere said that one should be sitting in a cave or a monastery for that matter, you know, in a full lotus and staring at the wall for one, or even at one's belly button, for that matter, mm -hmm. although both have their value. Mm -hmm. So that's just one thing. Concentration is something that we're doing in everyday life all the time, mm -hmm. and from you know the ancient Tibetan point of view, we are actually meditating mm -hmm. when we're clear of purpose and focus. Mm -hmm. And number two, in both the Tibetan Buddhist psychology, which I really like to call it, and in the Vedic um, counterpart of the Abhidharma, mm -hmm. we find an intense understanding of the nature of perception. Mm -hmm. And I just want to bring that to bear in this conversation mm -hmm. because it seems like it has a large role to play in the further, further refinement of our ability to enjoy and create language mm -hmm. and to move our consciousness to another level playing field. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on that? Because if you say that they have not evolved, you could almost also say that science is just catching up with them. In that sense, yes. But, you know, uh, meditation, uh, meditation, uh, the original term for meditation in, in Sanskrit, you know, dhyan, uh, means to stabilize. Mm -hmm. And uh, it actually has the yin and yang aspect. You know, that in Chinese, yin mm -hmm. is... Uh, uh, movement of radiation, when you uh, uh, radiate, the vacuum is created, and therefore there's a sucking back. It's the yin and yang. Yeah, and, yeah, and yang is actually a generative movement. You uh, concentrate, and then when you concentrate, there will be vacuum outside, and yes. then again goes back. So yin and yang are movement. So concentration without decentration is imbalanced. So meditation is actually both uh, the rhythmic balanced interchange, as Walter Russell said, is a concentration decentration. When there's a, you breathe in, you can't be just breathing out and out and out. You <laughs> need to breathe in in the same way. Right. Uh, there's a, a breathing in and breathing out. Inhale in, in, and exhale. In terms of movement of consciousness. So uh, stabilization meditation is this rhythm of concentration decentration concentration, decentration. When this rhythm is taking place, there's a harmony to your consciousness, and it begins to turn into the, the silent background upon which the waves of thought comes into being. So now you become holistically aware 
of the background and the foreground. Mm-hmm. And the foreground is going is concentration, decentration, concentration, decentration. There's space that actually holds both movements. Yes. And you become aware of all those three. And when that happens, you are in meditation. So uh, Tibetans and many people focus on uh, concentration, but actually that is uh, one side one of the story. Part. When this happens, then your perception becomes super-perception, your conception becomes super-conception, mm-hmm. and your rational mind is moving toward trans-rational mind. And that is the wholeness that is available for us today. It has always been available, mm. but now we can actually go beyond that which people before us have achieved. You know what? What we're going to do is next time we'll take on another task when we have you on again of unpacking enlightenment. I think we need to have infinite time to talk about the subject together. I agree. You see, so you need to have a perpetual <laughs> radio program, <laughs> and then you and I talk, and yeah. the people can join us all. Exactly. Listen and back and forth, yes. and yin and yang. Yin and yang, yes. <laughs> feed in and feed back exactly. and feed forward. Exactly. Yes. Remember to feed forward. Yes. It's and we will important. go beyond 24-7. Yes. What a, what a finite world. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yasuhiko, what a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Really brilliant, brilliant thinking and uh, inspired yet again. Thank you. Tell us your website so people can go and get more information. www.viadia-visioninaction.org Excellent. One more time. www.via dash visioninaction.org Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much Thank for you so much, Michelle. Contribution. Arigatou gozaimasu. Well, 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 I hope you enjoyed that and got inspired by that as much as I did. You can listen to that over and over again and get the the true nourishment of this intellectual conversation and dialogue. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Please join us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv abetterworld.tv and get on our mailing list, our newsletter that comes out. And Remember that we have another radio show every Wednesday at 6 p.m. and a TV show every Tuesday night at 10.30 on Manhattan Neighborhood Network here in New York City. Thanks again for joining us and I look forward to seeing you all next week.